Section 3 of A Bunch of Keys, Where They Were Found and What They Might Have Unlocked, a Christmas book, edited by Tom Hood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Wayne Cook. The Bunch of Keys, The Ring, by Thomas W. Robertson. Chapter 3. Concerning the Adventures into which the contents of the Big Black Box led us. The next few days we employed in secretly carrying the chief parts of our treasures to the cave. The cave had formerly been a cowshed. In fact, it was an abandoned and deserted cowshed. We, Captain O'Cow, but were supplied by John Simpson's brindle. And it was in the cave that we smoked bits of cane and prepared merry devils for the 5th of November. We had splendid days in the cave with our swords and our new dresses. Bob used to be Macduff and I Macbeth. I was King Richard and Bob the Earl of Richmond. Hamlet and Shylock were never cared about. I used to like to play the tyrant and to die. At the same time, I always wished to be the conqueror, too. If I could, I would have been both victor and vanquished, which the Reverend Dewhurst has since told me was a thoroughly tragic dramatic aspiration. At last, tired of taking it from books, I invented a new play out of my own head. The idea came upon me all at once without thinking. Thoughts always do come upon me in that way, which is indeed the distinguishing difference between me and Bob, who never has ideas, but who is a very good fellow and always ready to follow where superior intellect may lead. My new idea was to act the savage and his keeper, Bob being stupid to be the savage, and I being intellectual, the keeper. I dressed up Bob in the white Turkish trousers, tucking them up to make them short enough, in the white shirt with the gold fringes, the tiger skin over his shoulders, and birds of paradise which were struck into a gold band upon his head. Thus attired, Bob used to tumble and knock himself about, as we had seen the wild Indian at Thorpecroft's feast. Bob had a large chain round his neck, which I held at one end, and armed with a whip, with which I frequently threatened and sometimes used upon him, often saying, Back, sir! Ah, dare you! made him crouch and go through his performance. It was ten nights after opening the box, and Bob and I were in bed, Bob fast asleep, and I grasping the trusty dagger which I ever kept beneath my midnight pillow, when another thought flashed across me. I immediately nudged Bob, who, selfish fellow, was a long time before he would wake sufficiently to understand me, and said to him, Bob, suppose we were to run away for a week or fortnight, and get money as the men did at the feast, by being wild Indian and keeper. Bob's reply was, I'm clumps. But I soon made him hear and understand, to the best of his capacity. We should get plenty of money, said I. See life and the country, enjoy adventures, and get back home again before father returns from London. Eh, brave Alozondo de Molina, what sayest thou? Tell you in the morning, muttered my unworthy brother, and went to sleep again. The next day I talked him over, and we discussed, that is, I talked and he listened, the plan of the campaign. 
I have forgotten to mention that I had an excellent voice, and was a first-rate sentimental singer and reciter, and, as I said, between my songs and recitations and his wild Indian, we could not want. We scraped together four and ninepence in cash. Bob conveyed my best suit to the cave, and two nights after, when Martha, John Simpson, and Jane had gone to bed, we slipped the lock of our front door. It was a cold, bright, green, moonlit night, and ran to the cave, attired ourselves, and the world was before us. We walked all night across country in order to get as far away as we could from Martha and Thorpecroft. We were both in high spirits, having a bottle of beer, which the poor Indian, with untutored mind, carried in a sling. About ten o'clock the next morning, being both very hungry, I went into a village, I have not the slightest notion where it was, and bought, at a shop where they seemed to sell everything, a loaf of bread, a pound of cheese, and a half-pound of salt. I then went to the public-house, it was the sign of the plough, and bought a pint and a half of beer. People asked me questions, but I was too much for them. I had not read the Arabian Nights for nothing, and when I returned to Bob, whom I had left in a hollow tree, like Olson, I found him crying. I reproached him with his unmanliness, and consoled him with the bread and cheese which we were so greedy as to eat all up. After our repast, we went to sleep in each other's arms. We always used to lie back to back when we were in bed at home. I don't know how long we slept, but when we awoke, it was still daylight. We were hungry again, and quarreled about the bread and cheese we had eaten before we slept. We walked for three hours, still cross-country, and we saw the smoke from the chimneys of another village or town. It was quite dark when we reached it. I bought some more bread and cheese at a little shop, and then I found we had only two shillings and a halfpenny left. So when Bob had refreshed himself, I said to him it was high time we should begin to exhibit. I pulled the chain out of Bob's pocket, he had on his own trousers under the Turkish ones, and fastened him up. From a field we scrambled through a hedge and dropped down into a main road, passed through a turnpike, and went downhill towards the town. A stream of light came from the open door of a public house, and I heard men talking within. Now, Bob, I said, now is the time. Remember to growl and snatch when I pull at the chain. I walked boldly in, leaving Bob outside and I found from a dozen to twenty men seated on a settle round a large fireplace, smoking and drinking. They were all talking, but when they saw me, they laid off. Gentlemen, said I, taking off my cap. They were very common men, navigators or something of that sort, but I said gentlemen to please them. Would you like to see the wild Indian which I have just brought from Liverpool? Three or four of them said, What, lad? and I repeated my question. "'What wild Indian?' asked one very big man, whom the others called Joe. The men grinned and said, "'Oh, lie, lad, bring him in.' I went out, cracked my whip, and led Bobby in by the chain. "'This is the wild Indian, gentlemen,' I said. "'He is one of the tribe of Delaware, and he answers to the name of Uncas.' He was a chieftain in his own tribe, and was known upon the war trail as the Artful Panther. Back, sir! I raised my whip for Uncas, 
the artful panther of the tribe of Delaware advanced towards me, grinning with cannibalical intent, but a skillful cut of the whip upon the shoulders where it didn't hurt subdued him, and he shrank back dismayed. The men laughed loudly. The landlady, a very stout woman, and a servant, a trifle stouter, came in. Lord, bless the boys, said the landlady. Can you do aught else? If it is your pleasure, madam, I said, for I saw the glibness of my tongue had struck her. I will make him come through the whole of his performance. Come, sir, come! The artful panther uttered the Indian exclamation. There! and again showed signs of disobedience, but I was not to be trifled with, and beat him. Having brought him to reason, he stood upon his head, tumbled through handsprings, picked up a sixpence with his mouth, and finished by throwing himself in a posture of humility at the feet of the master, who stood pointing gracefully at him with his whip. The spectators laughed and applauded, gave us both beer, and the man they called for asked me if the Indian wasn't a very wild un. Oh, very wild indeed, sir, I replied. You must have had a deal of trouble to time him, continued he. A very great deal, sir. He's only this fresh caught. At which there was another laugh. What did you say his name was? asked Joe. Uncas saw the artful panther. Artful pension, said the landlady, and the men laughed again. You didn't learn to talk as you talk among the engines, I expect, said Joe. No, sir, I answered. And how is it, my pretty boy, as you are going about the country this how with your engine? asked the landlady. Expects down the road, mother, said a light-haired, blue-eyed young man. On the road or not, Bill Gastelo, there where there no business to be, said the woman. Who's your father and mother, me by? I have no mother, said I. Take a drop more beer, said the giant Joe, and the engine too, if he be such a wild bird. Thank you, sir. I never allow him to drink beer. It might fly to his blood, at which there was another roar of laughter. And where's your father? asked the landlady. He, I answered, is far, far away. Got missus, don't let the land more questions. It's no business of yourn, said the woman's husband. See, lad, uh, can you do what else? The Indian Uncas, said I, has concluded his performance, but, ladies and gentlemen, with your kind permission, I will sing you a sentimental song. The proposal was received with great favour, and Uncas, or Bob, being accommodated with a corner to crouch in, and a bone of shoulder of mutton for the gratification of his ferocious native instincts, I sang, Isabel. It was one of my best musical performances. I was loudly applauded, and the young man, Bill Gastelow, laid his head upon the wooden table before him and sobbed audibly. His mates told him to cheer up, and the servant girl whispered to me that Bill's sweetheart had proved false to him and gone off with the recruiting sergeant, and from the servant girl's look and manner I thought that she felt that she would like to console Bill Gastelow. I sang more songs, and at last the giant Joe said, Now, mates, these here buyers can't do this for nothing. They got our living to got to wells us. So I shall go round with the at and recollect as they've done all their work and there ain't no sub. A collection was made and the sum of three shillings and fourpence, all in coppers, was handed to us. Mother, 
said Big Joe to the landlady, I'm going down to the checkers to see Jim Crosby, and I'll take these two boys with me. Perhaps they'll make a trifle more there. Now, turning to me, will you swear your affidavit that as there's a wild engine and yarn won't hurt me? I'll take care that he doesn't hurt you, sir, I said, grasping my whip. You'll be responsible for me, said Joe, for I've a wife and family, and if he kills and eats me, what'll become of him? So Joe took us to the checkers, which was a larger public house than the one we had left, and full of navigators and their wives and sweethearts, and Ocus performed again, and I sang several songs, and we made eight shillings and tenpence, and we went to bed thoroughly tired, in a little bedroom which the landlady, at Joe's request, let to us. We slept till four o'clock in the afternoon of the next day, and took our breakfast at the same time that the landlord and landlady took their tea. Before we left, I asked the landlady what we owed her, and she said a shilling, sixpence for our suppers, and sixpence for our breakfast. Then there's the bed, said I. Never mind that, was her reply. We don't charge little boys like you for beds. I mentioned this to Uncas, or Bob, and asked him whether he did not think it rather rude of her. No, said Bob. I think it was very kind. I pointed out to him that we had plenty of money to pay with, but he only answered by proposing toffee at a sweetstuff shop. But I reminded him that an Indian chieftain should not think of toffee, that a raw fowl or the flesh of an opossum with the skin torn off its back was the mildest refreshment he could think of. Oh, brother! answered Bob. I dare say Indian chieftains eat sweet stuff when they're young, fast enough. We were now in the gas-lighted streets, and the crowd soon gathered round us. I secured Bob by his chain, and made in the direction of what had been pointed out to me for the crown and anchor, the commercial and family hotel, it was called. I asked to be allowed to exhibit in the parlor, but a very proud young lady behind a glass bar would not hear of it, and a waiter, a tall, insolent beast, pushed me from the door, and threatened to send for a constable. I felt I could have killed him, for the little boys about yelled and hooted us. My spirits were low for the whole evening. We exhibited in two very humble public houses, but we made only two shillings altogether. We got to bed at a washerwoman's, and slept in the same room with her mangled, and the mangled seemed to fascinate the Indian Bob, who would insist on getting out of bed to turn it. I explained to the woman that this being the first civilized mechanical contrivance he had seen connected with the washing of linen, his curiosity was natural. I could not help smarting under the humiliation and outrage we had suffered from the brute of a waiter, and indeed during the whole of our adventures it was singular that whenever we went into a big hotel frequented by tradesmen, we were always scouted or treated uncivilly, whereas at a roadside public house, where laborers and those sorts of people were drinking, we were welcomed and rewarded. After this manner, several days passed away, and we heard nothing of any offer at pursuit, either by Martha or by the Reverend Dewhurst. Twice we were questioned by rural policemen with swords by their sides as to who we were, but the answers I gave were considered satisfactory. I always said I was an orphan, and that Bob was an Indian boy, the property of my late father, who had long lived in America, and the sole remains of the wreck of our former fortunes. The weather grew very cold, 
and the snow came down in large flakes. The cold was a peculiar sort of cold, too. It wasn't in the snow, but in the wind. No matter how fast we walked, the red stuff Bob had upon his face and arms, the same stuff used by the plowman on Plow Monday, never came off from perspiration. We got enough money just to live upon, but we never did so well as on the first day. We discovered that cold boiled bacon was a better investment than cheese. We stopped one whole day in one place to get Bob's roller's shirt and Othello's Turkish trousers washed. There was great fun made by the women about washing the gold fringe, which never looked well afterwards. We reached a little village, which was all excitement on account of the holding of a county court, and a great case between the parish clerk and a Quaker about the non-payment of a sum of sixpence yearly, which the Quaker would not pay because it went against his conscience to pay it, and the parish clerk would not go without because it went against his conscience to go without it. Nobody would listen to us, and we went away sadly with only temptants left in our pockets. We were told of another village, five miles off, but the country all about was white, and we missed our way trying for a shortcut. The snow came down furiously, and the wind cut us like a knife. We wandered and wandered about till sundown, then till dark, and we began to cry bitterly. For I thought of home, and Martha, and Mrs. Dewhurst, and Amy, and I reproached Bob, in his nasty, ugly white dress, in his brown face, for having persuaded me to run away from them. At last we saw a light and made for it. We found a large farmhouse, all by itself, with stone posts and chains before it, and at the gate stood an elderly man, without a handkerchief round his neck, and no hat on. He had a very red face and wild eyes, and he was talking loudly to himself. We asked him if he would witness our performance, but he swore at us terribly, said we were a couple of young vagrants who wanted to set fire to his stacks, and that he would set his dogs on us and worry us. And he went away, and we heard the clanking of chains and the barking of six or eight large dogs, and we ran as hard as our legs could carry us. We paused at last went out of hearing of the dogs and looked around. We could hardly see a yard before us for the drifting snow, and the wind howled about us madly. We plodded on, our feet sinking deep at every step. Bob walked first, and I trod in the footprints he made. There was an odd, cold, fresh smell in the air. We were alone upon a sword of heath going up a hill, and the wind grew colder and colder. Our feet began to freeze, and our limbs to grow numb. I had ceased to weep, and Bob kept turning his head back, and saying as well as he could through the mouthfuls of snow, that if we kept walking, we must come out somewhere. The cold grew more and more intense as we toiled on, and Bob in his white dress seemed to mingle with the falling flakes, when suddenly I heard a sharp cry, and he sank from my sight. I threw myself flat upon my face. Bob had perished. My gallant, generous, noble brother was no more. And by my act, but for my persuasions, he would never have started on this despicable adventure, and could never have fallen into the ravine where he lie stiff and dead. 
Oh, the supreme bitterness of those moments. Oh, the agonies of self-reproach. Oh, my dear, dear home, my kind father and the Dewhursts, why did I leave you? Why did I ever open the big black box in the smear bedroom? Why had I ever been born? All of these thoughts rushed through my aching brain as I lay sobbing, the snow falling over and covering me like a shroud. The wind swooped and howled with the savage triumph of a fiend, and such was the disordered state of my intellect that I thought it roared my name. Steve! I felt I could contend with no more, but you die upon that frozen bed. Again the wind howled. Steve! No, not the wind. Bob. It was Bob's voice. Bob's. I was on my feet in an instant. I placed my hands before my mouth, trumpet-wise, and roared out, Bob! His voice, coming from where I could not guess, though it sounded as from a deep well, answered, Steve! Where? This way. Forward. All right. Down here. He was alive. Bob was alive. I crept forward slowly on my face, swimming as it were in the thick snow. Bob's voice guided me and I floundered on until I felt myself at the edge of a sort of hill or precipice. I cleared the snow from my mouth and shouted. Here I am, answered Bob. Where? Down here. Come on, it's quite warm. It isn't far. Hurt yourself? Not much. Broken anything? Yes. What? The beer bottle? I mean nims. No, a few bruises. It's jolly warm down here. Wait till I light a match. You'll see. By the light of the Lucifer I saw Bob's white face, for it had been completely washed by the snow, six feet below me. Stop till I light the candle, said Bob. We always carried a candle in Lucifer's. Then you can come and see to drop. The wind will blow it out, I gasped. There's no wind down here. It's sheltered. Now. The candle was lighted, and I dropped down into the ravine. I say ravine because... I didn't know what else to call it. It seemed as if the earth had cracked, and a sort of hole or cavern had been formed. There was only a space a foot wide above our heads. Snow had drifted to the left of us, and on the right was earth and brushwood. The top of the bank arched over, so that it was more like being in an underground mud cavern or cowshed than anything else. The intense and immediate comfort was the warmth, the absence of wind, and our cheeks and hands tingled with the pricks of pins and needles. Steve, said Bob. What? Let's light a fire. Before we do that, Bob, I answered, we'll do something else. What? Say a prayer. And we knelt down and said the evening prayer taught us by Mr. Dewhurst, and a return thanks for the deliverance of my dear brother from a terrible death. Bob then limped to the brushwood, hacked it down with a short Roman sword, and kindled a fire. The smoke was rather tiresome, but the heat was most grateful, and we ate the remains of our provisions, a quarter in loaf and a very small piece of bacon, with an intense relish. As for drink, as Bob said, there were snowballs enough for a large family. We then threw on more brushwood, using the Roman sword as a poker, and went to sleep the tiger-skin serving for a quilt. I woke before Bob. Our fire was out. I looked upward and saw a strip of sky over the roof of our cave. The snow had ceased to fall. It was still dark. I resolved to look out. 
So drawing that most useful of weapons, the Roman sword, from the fire, I stuck it into the sides of the cave, and then standing upon it, gazed out upon the track we had travelled. Nothing was to be seen but a flat surface of snow, pure, white, and unsullied as freshly washed linen. I detected a strange noise, too, which was not the wind, but more like the slapping, flopping, stealing rush of water. With some difficulty, I turned myself around, still standing on the iron hilt of the sword. I looked up and saw a huge white ghost a mile high in the sky. It glared angrily at me, with an eye or mouth or both, emitting a red, blinding, awful flame. I suppressed a shriek and fell senseless. End of chapter 3